Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 16 of Barchester Towers by Anthony Trollope. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Nick Whitley, Purley, United Kingdom. Chapter 16. Baby Worship. Diddle, 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 dum, dum, dum said or sung eleanor bold diddle 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 dum 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 continued mary bold taking up the second part in this concerted piece the only audience at the concert was the baby who however gave such vociferous applause that the performers presuming it to amount to an encore commenced again diddle 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 dum 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 hasn't he got lovely legs said the rapturous mother simmered mary burying her lips in the little fellow's fat neck by way of kissing him simmered the mamma burying her lips also in his fat round short legs he's a dirty little bold darling so he is and he has the nicest little pink legs in all the world so he has and the simmering and the kissing went on over again as though the ladies were very hungry and determined to eat him well then he's his own mother's own darling well he shall oh oh mary mary did you ever see what am i to do my naughty 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 little johnny all these energetic exclamations were elicited by the delight of the mother in finding that her son was strong enough and mischievous enough to pull all her hair out from under her cap he's been and pulled down all mamma's hair and he's the naughtiest 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 little man that ever 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 a regular service of baby worship was going on mary bold was sitting on a low easy chair with the boy in her lap and eleanor was kneeling before the object of her idolatry as she tried to cover up the little fellow's face with her long glossy dark brown locks and permitted him to pull them hither and thither as he would she looked very beautiful in spite of the widow's cap which she still wore there was a quiet enduring grateful sweetness about her face which grew so strongly upon those who knew her as to make the great praise of her beauty which came from her old friends appear marvellously exaggerated to those who were only slightly acquainted with her her loveliness was like that of many landscapes which require to be often seen to be fully enjoyed there was a depth of dark clear brightness in her eyes which was lost upon a quick observer a character about her mouth which only showed itself to those with whom she familiarly conversed a glorious form of head the perfect symmetry of which required the eye of an artist for its appreciation she had none of that dazzling brilliancy of that voluptuous rubens beauty of that pearly whiteness 
and those vermilion tints which immediately entranced with the power of a basilisk men who came within reach of madeline neroni it was all but impossible to resist the signora but no one was called upon for any resistance towards eleanor you might begin to talk to her as though she were your sister and it would not be till your head was on your pillow that the truth and intensity of her beauty would flash upon you that the sweetness of her voice would come upon your ear a sudden half-hour with the neroni was like falling into a pit an evening spent with eleanor like an unexpected ramble in some quiet fields of asphodel we'll cover him up till there shan't be a morsel of his little 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 nose to be seen said the mother stretching her streaming locks over the infant's face the child screamed with delight and kicked till mary bold was hardly able to hold him at this moment the door opened and mr slope was announced up jumped eleanor and with a sudden quick motion of her hands pushed back her hair over her shoulders it would have been perhaps better for her that she had not for she thus showed more of her confusion than she would have done had she remained as she was mr slope however immediately recognized her loveliness and thought to himself that irrespective of her fortune she would be an inmate that a man might well desire for his house a partner for his bosom's care very well qualified to make care lie easy eleanor hurried out of the room to readjust her cap muttering some unnecessary apology about her baby and while she is gone we will briefly go back and state what had been hitherto the results of mr slope's meditations on his scheme of matrimony his inquiries as to the widow's income had at any rate been so far successful as to induce him to determine to go on with the speculation as regarded mr harding he had also resolved to do what he could without injury to himself to mrs proudie he determined not to speak on the matter at least not at present his object was to instigate a little rebellion on the part of the bishop he thought that such a state of things would be advisable not only in respect to messrs harding and quiverfore but also in the affairs of the diocese generally mr slope was by no means of opinion that dr proudie was fit to rule but he conscientiously thought it wrong that his brother clergy should be subjected to petticoat government he therefore made up his mind to infuse a little of his spirit into the bishop sufficient to induce him to oppose his wife though not enough to make him altogether insubordinate he had therefore taken an opportunity of again speaking to his lordship about the hospital and had endeavoured to make it appear that after all it would be unwise to exclude mr harding from the appointment mr slope however had a harder task than he had imagined mrs proudie anxious to assume to herself as much as possible of the merit of patronage had written to mrs quiverful requesting her to call at the palace 
and had then explained to that matron with much mystery condescension and dignity the good that was in store for her and her progeny indeed mrs proudie had been so engaged at the very time that mr slope had been doing the same with the husband at puddingdale vicarage and had thus in a measure committed herself the thanks the humility the gratitude the surprise of mrs quiverful had been very overpowering she had all but embraced the knees of her patroness and had promised that the prayers of fourteen unprovided babes so mrs quiverful had described her own family the eldest of which was a stout young woman of three-and-twenty should be put up to heaven morning and evening for the munificent friend whom god had sent to them such incense as this was not unpleasing to mrs proudie and she made the most of it she offered her general assistance to the fourteen unprovided babes if as she had no doubt she should find them worthy expressed a hope that the eldest of them would be fit to undertake tuition in her sabbath schools and altogether made herself a very great lady in the estimation of mrs quiverful having done this she thought it prudent to drop a few words before the bishop letting him know that she had acquainted the puddingdale family with their good fortune so that he might perceive that he stood committed to the appointment the husband well understood the rules of his wife but he did not resent it he knew that she was taking the patronage out of his hands he was resolved to put an end to her interference and reassume his powers but then he thought this was not the best time to do it he put off the evil hour as many a man in similar circumstances has done before him such having been the case mr slope naturally encountered a difficulty in talking over the bishop a difficulty indeed which he found could not be overcome except at the cost of a general outbreak at the palace a general outbreak at the present moment might be good policy but it also might not it was at any rate not a step to be lightly taken he began by whispering to the bishop that he feared that public opinion would be against him if mr harding did not reappear at the hospital the bishop answered with some warmth that mr quiverful had been promised the appointment on mr slope's advice not promised said mr slope yes promised replied the bishop and mrs proudie has seen mrs quiverful on the subject this was quite unexpected on the part of mr slope but his presence of mind did not fail him and he turned the statement to his own account ah my lord said he we shall all be in scrapes if the ladies interfere this was too much in unison with my lord's feelings to be altogether unpalatable and yet such an allusion to interference demanded a rebuke my lord was somewhat astounded also though not altogether made miserable by finding that there was a point of difference between his wife and his chaplain i don't know what you mean by interference said the bishop mildly 
when mrs proudie heard that mr quiverful was to be appointed it was not unnatural that she should wish to see mrs quiverful about the schools i really cannot say that i see any interference i only speak my lord for your own comfort said slope for your own comfort and dignity in the diocese i can have no other motive as far as personal feelings go mrs proudie is the best friend i have i must always remember that but still in my present position my first duty is to your lordship i'm sure of that mr slope i am quite sure of that said the bishop mollified and you really think that mr harding should have the hospital upon my word i am inclined to think so i am quite prepared to take upon myself the blame of first suggesting mr quiverful's name but since doing so i have found that there is so strong a feeling in the diocese in favour of mr harding that i think your lordship should give way i hear also that mr harding has modified the objections he first felt to your lordship's propositions and as to what has passed between mrs proudie and mrs quiverful the circumstance may be a little inconvenient but i really do not think that that should weigh in a matter of so much moment and thus the poor bishop was left in a dreadfully undecided step as to what he should do his mind however slightly inclined itself to the appointment of mr harding seeing that by such a step he should have the assistance of mr slope in opposing mrs proudie such was the state of affairs at the palace when mr slope called at mrs bold's house and found her playing with her baby when she ran out of the room mr slope began praising the weather to mary bold then he praised the baby and kissed him and then he praised the mother and then he praised miss bold herself mrs bold however was not long before she came back i have to apologise for calling at so very early an hour began mr slope but i was really so anxious to speak to you that i hope you and miss bold will excuse me eleanor muttered something in which the words certainly and of course and not early at all were just audible and then apologised for her own appearance declaring with a smile that her baby was becoming such a big boy that he was quite unmanageable he's a great big naughty boy said she to the child and we must send him away to a great big rough romping school where they have great big rods and do terrible things to naughty boys who don't do what their own mammas tell them and then she commenced another course of kissing being actuated thereto by the terrible idea of sending her child away which her own imagination had depicted and where the masters don't have such beautiful long hair to be dishevelled said mr slope taking up the joke 
and paying a compliment at the same time eleanor thought he might as well have left the compliment alone but she said nothing and looked nothing being occupied as she was with the baby let me take him said mary his clothes are nearly off his back with his romping and so saying she left the room with the child miss bold had heard mr slope say he had something pressing to say to eleanor and thinking that she might be de trop took this opportunity of getting herself out of the room don't be long mary said eleanor as miss bold shut the door i am glad mrs bold to have the opportunity of having ten minutes conversation with you alone began mr slope will you let me openly ask you a plain question certainly said she and i am sure you will give me a plain and open answer either that or none at all said she laughing my question is this mrs bold is your father really anxious to go back to the hospital why do you ask me said she why don't you ask himself my dear mrs bold i'll tell you why there are wheels within wheels all of which i would explain to you only i fear that there is not time it is essentially necessary that i should have an answer to this question otherwise i cannot know how to advance your father's wishes and it is quite impossible that i should ask himself no one can esteem your father more than i do but i doubt if this feeling is reciprocal it certainly was not i must be candid with you as the only means of avoiding ultimate consequences which may be most injurious to mr harding i fear there is a feeling i will not even call it a prejudice with regard to myself in barchester which is not in my favour you remember that sermon oh mr slope we need not go back to that said eleanor for one moment mrs bold it is not that i may talk of myself but because it is so essential that you should understand how matters stand that sermon may have been ill-judged it was certainly misunderstood but i will say nothing about that now only this that it did give rise to a feeling against myself which your father shares with others it may be that he has proper cause but the result is that he is not inclined to meet me on friendly terms i put it to yourself whether you do not know this to be the case eleanor made no answer and mr slope in the eagerness of his address edged his chair a little nearer to the widow's seat unperceived by her such being so continued mr slope i cannot ask him this question as i can ask it of you in spite of my delinquencies since i came to barchester you have allowed me to regard you as a friend eleanor made a little motion with her head which was hardly confirmatory but mr slope if he noticed it did not appear to do so 
to you i can speak openly and explain the feelings of my heart this your father would not allow unfortunately the bishop has thought it right that this matter of the hospital should pass through my hands there have been some details to get up with which he would not trouble himself and thus it has come to pass that i was forced to have an interview with your father on the matter i am aware of that said eleanor of course said he in that interview mr harding left the impression on my mind that he did not wish to return to the hospital how could that be said eleanor at last stirred up to forget the cold propriety of demeanour which she had determined to maintain my dear mrs bold i give you my word that such was the case said he again getting a little nearer to her and what is more than that before my interview with mr harding certain persons at the palace i do not mean the bishop had told me that such was the fact i own i hardly believe it i own i thought that your father would wish on every account for conscience sake for the sake of those old men for old association and the memory of dear days long gone by on every account i thought that he would wish to resume his duties but i was told that such was not his wish and he certainly left me with the impression that i had been told the truth well said eleanor now sufficiently roused on the matter i hear miss bold's step said mr slope would it be asking too great a favour to beg you to i know you can manage anything with miss bold eleanor did not like the word manage but still she went out and asked mary to leave them alone for another quarter of an hour thank you mrs bold i am so very grateful for this confidence well i left your father with this impression indeed i may say that he made me understand that he declined the appointment not the appointment said eleanor i am sure he did not decline the appointment but he said that he would not agree that is that he did not like the scheme about the schools and the services and all that i am quite sure he never said that he wished to refuse the place oh mrs bold said mr slope in a manner almost impassioned i would not for the world say to so good a daughter a word against so good a father but you must for his sake let me show you exactly how the matter stands at present mr harding was a little flurried when i told him of the bishop's wishes about the school i did so perhaps with the less caution because you yourself had so perfectly agreed with me on the same subject he was a little put out and spoke warmly tell the bishop said he 
that i quite disagree with him and shall not return to the hospital as such conditions are attached to it what he said was to that effect indeed his words were if anything stronger than those i had no alternative but to repeat them to his lordship who said that he could look on them in no other light than a refusal he also had heard the report that your father did not wish for the appointment and putting all these things together he thought he had no choice but to look for someone else he has consequently offered the place to mr quiverful offered the place to mr quiverful repeated eleanor her eyes suffused with tears then mr slope there is an end of it no my friend not so said he it is to prevent such being the end of it that i am now here i may at any rate presume that i have got an answer to my question and that mr harding is desirous of returning desirous of returning of course he is said eleanor of course he wishes to have back his house and his income and his place in the world to have back what he gave up with such self-denying honesty if he can have them without restraints on his conduct to which at his age it would be impossible that he should submit how can the bishop ask a man of his age to turn schoolmaster to a pack of children out of the question said mr slope laughing slightly of course no such demand shall be made on your father i can at any rate promise you that i will not be the medium of any so absurd a requisition we wished your father to preach in the hospital as the inmates may naturally be too old to leave it but even that shall not be insisted on we wished also to attach a sabbath-day school to the hospital thinking that such an establishment could not but be useful under the surveillance of so good a clergyman as mr harding and also under your own but dear mrs bold we won't talk of these things now one thing is clear we must do what we can to annul this rash offer the bishop has made to mr quiverful your father wouldn't see quiverful would he quiverful is an honourable man and would not for a moment stand in your father's way what said eleanor ask a man with fourteen children to give up his preferment i am quite sure he will do no such thing i suppose not said slope and he again drew near to mrs bold so that now they were very close to each other eleanor did not think much about it but instinctively moved away a little how greatly would she have increased the distance could she have guessed what had been said about her at plumstead i suppose not but it is out of the question that quiverful should supersede your father quite out of the question the bishop has been too rash an idea occurs to me which may perhaps with god's blessing put us right 
my dear mrs bold would you object to seeing the bishop yourself why should not my father see him said eleanor she had once before in her life interfered in her father's affairs and then not to much advantage she was older now and felt that she should take no step in a matter so vital to him without his consent why to tell the truth said mr slope with a look of sorrow as though he greatly bewailed the want of charity in his patron the bishop fancies that he has cause of anger against your father i fear an interview would lead to further ill-will why said eleanor my father is the mildest the gentlest man living i only know said slope that he has the best of daughters so you would not see the bishop as to getting an interview i could manage that for you without the slightest annoyance to yourself i could do nothing mr slope without consulting my father ah said he that would be useless you would then only be your father's messenger does anything occur to yourself something must be done your father shall not be ruined by so ridiculous a misunderstanding eleanor said that nothing occurred to her but that it was very hard the tears came to her eyes and rolled down her cheeks mr slope would have given much to have had the privilege of drying them but he had tact enough to know that he had still a great deal to do before he could even hope for any privilege with mrs bold it cuts me to the heart to see you so grieved said he but pray let me assure you that your father's interests shall not be sacrificed if it be possible for me to protect them i will tell the bishop openly what are the facts i will explain to him that he has hardly the right to appoint any other than your father and will show him that if he does so he will be guilty of great injustice and you mrs bold you will have the charity at any rate to believe this of me that i am truly anxious for your father's welfare for his and for your own the widow hardly knew what answer to make she was quite aware that her father would not be at all thankful to mr slope she had a strong wish to share her father's feelings and yet she could not but acknowledge that mr slope was very kind her father who was generally so charitable to all men who seldom spoke ill of any one had warned her against mr slope and yet she did not know how to abstain from thanking him what interest could he have in the matter but that which he professed nevertheless there was that in his manner which even she distrusted she felt she did not know why that there was something about him which ought to put her on her guard mr slope read all this in her hesitating manner 
just as plainly as though she had opened her heart to him it was the talent of the man that he could so read the inward feelings of women with whom he conversed he knew that eleanor was doubting him and that if she thanked him she would only do so because she could not help it but yet this did not make him angry or even annoy him rome was not built in a day i did not come for thanks continued he seeing her hesitation and do not want them at any rate before they are merited but this i do want mrs bold that i may make to myself friends in this fold to which it has pleased god to call me as one of the humblest of his shepherds if i cannot do so my task here must indeed be a sad one i will at any rate endeavour to deserve them i'm sure said she you will soon make plenty of friends she felt herself obliged to say something that will be nothing unless they are such as will sympathise with my feelings unless they are such as i can reverence and admire and love if the best and purest turn away from me i cannot bring myself to be satisfied with the friendship of the less estimable in such case i must live alone oh i'm sure you will not do that mr slope eleanor meant nothing but it suited him to appear to think some special allusion had been intended indeed mrs bold i shall live alone quite alone as far as the heart is concerned if those with whom i yearn to ally myself turn away from me but enough of this i have called you my friend and i hope you will not contradict me i trust the time may come when i may also call your father so may god bless you mrs bold you and your darling boy and tell your father from me that what can be done for his interest shall be done and so he took his leave pressing the widow's hand rather more closely than usual circumstances however seemed just then to make this intelligible and the lady did not feel called on to resent it i cannot understand him said eleanor to mary bold a few minutes afterwards i do not know whether he is a good man or a bad man whether he is true or false then give him the benefit of the doubt said mary and believe the best on the whole i think i do said eleanor i think i do believe that he means well and if so it is a shame that we should revile him and make him miserable while he is among us but oh mary i fear papa will be disappointed in the hospital End of chapter sixteen recording by nick whitley purley united kingdom chapter seventeen of barchester towers by anthony trollope this librivox recording is in the public domain 
Recording by Nick Whitley, Purley, United Kingdom. Chapter Seventeen: Who Shall Be Cock of the Walk? All this time things were going somewhat uneasily at the palace. The hint or two which Mr. Slope had given was by no means thrown away upon the bishop. He had a feeling that if he ever meant to oppose the now almost unendurable despotism of his wife, he must lose no further time in doing so, that if he ever meant to be himself master in his own diocese, let alone his own house, he should begin at once. It would have been easier to have done so from the day of his consecration than now, but easier now than when Mrs. Proudie should have succeeded in thoroughly mastering the diocesan details. Then the proffered assistance of Mr. Slope was a great thing for him, a most unexpected and invaluable aid hitherto he had looked on the two as allied forces and had considered that as allies they were impregnable he had begun to believe that his only chance of escape would be by the advancement of mr slope to some distant and rich preferment but now it seemed that one of his enemies certainly the least potent of them but nevertheless one very important was willing to desert his own camp assisted by mr slope what might he not do he walked up and down his little study almost thinking that the time might come when he would be able to appropriate to his own use the big room upstairs in which his predecessor had always sat as he revolved these things in his mind a note was brought to him from archdeacon grantly in which that divine begged his lordship to do him the honour of seeing him on the morrow would his lordship have the kindness to name an hour dr grantly's proposed visit would have reference to the reappointment of mr harding to the wardenship of barchester hospital the bishop having read his note was informed that the archdeacon's servant was waiting for an answer here at once a great opportunity offered itself to the bishop of acting on his own responsibility he bethought himself however of his new ally and rang the bell for mr slope it turned out that mr slope was not in the house and then greatly daring the bishop with his own unassisted spirit wrote a note to the archdeacon saying that he would see him and naming an hour for doing so having watched from his study window that the messenger got safely off from the premises with this dispatch he began to turn over in his mind what step he should next take to-morrow he would have to declare to the archdeacon either that mr harding should have the appointment or that he should not have it the bishop felt that he could not honestly throw over the quiverfuls without informing mrs proudie 
and he resolved at last to brave the lioness in her den and tell her that circumstances were such that it behoved him to reappoint mr harding he did not feel that he should at all derogate from his new courage by promising mrs proudie that the very first piece of available preferment at his disposal should be given to quiverful to atone for the injury done to him if he could mollify the lioness with such a sop how happy would he think his first efforts to have been not without many misgivings did he find himself in mrs proudie's boudoir he had at first thought of sending for her but it was not at all impossible that she might choose to take such a message amiss and then also it might be some protection to him to have his daughters present at the interview he found her sitting with her account-books before her nibbling the end of her pencil evidently immersed in pecuniary difficulties and harassed in mind by the multiplicity of palatial expenses and the heavy cost of episcopal grandeur her daughters were around her olivia was reading a novel augusta was crossing a note to her bosom friend in baker street and netta was working diminutive coach-wheels for the bottom of a petticoat if the bishop could get the better of his wife in her present mood he would be a man indeed he might then consider the victory his own for ever after all in such cases the matter between husband and wife stands much the same as it does between two boys at the same school two cocks in the same yard or two armies on the same continent the conqueror once is generally the conqueror for ever after the prestige of victory is everything <clears throat> my dear began the bishop if you are disengaged i wished to speak to you mrs browdie put her pencil down carefully at the point to which she had totted her figures marked down in her memory the sum she had arrived at and then looked up sourly enough into her helpmate's face if you are busy another time will do as well continued the bishop whose courage like bob acres had oozed out now that he found himself on the ground of battle what is it about bishop asked the lady well it was about those quiverfuls but i see you are engaged another time will do just as well for me what about the quiverfuls it is quite understood i believe that they are to come to the hospital there is to be no doubt about that is there and as she spoke she kept her pencil sternly and vigorously fixed on the column of figures before her why my dear there is a difficulty said the bishop a difficulty said mrs proudie what difficulty the place has been promised to mr quiverful and of course he must have it he has made all his arrangements he has written for a curate for puddingdale he has spoken to the auctioneer about selling his farm horses and cows and in all respects considers the place as his own of course he must have it now bishop 
look well to thyself and call up all the manhood that is in thee think how much is at stake if now thou art not true to thy guns no slope can hereafter aid thee how can he who deserts his own colours at the first smell of gunpowder expect faith in any ally thou thyself hast sought the battlefield fight out the battle manfully now thou art there courage bishop courage frowns cannot kill nor can sharp words break any bones after all the apron is thine own she can appoint no wardens give away no benefices nominate no chaplains and thou art but true to thyself up man and at her with a constant heart some little monitor within the bishop's breast so addressed him but then there was another monitor there which advised him differently and as follows remember bishop she is a woman and such a woman too as thou well knowest a battle of words with such a woman is the very mischief were it not better for thee to carry on this war if it must be waged from behind thine own table in thine own study does not every cock fight best on his own dunghill thy daughters also are here the pledges of thy love the fruits of thy loins is it well that they should see thee in the hour of thy victory over their mother nay is it well that they should see thee in the possible hour of thy defeat besides hast thou not chosen thy opportunity with wonderful little skill indeed with no touch of that sagacity for which thou art famous will it not turn out that thou art wrong in this matter and thine enemy right that thou hast actually pledged thyself in this matter of the hospital and that now thou wouldest turn upon thy wife because she requires from thee but the fulfilment of thy promise art thou not a christian bishop and is not thy word to be held sacred whatever be the result return bishop to thy sanctum on the lower floor and postpone thy combative propensities for some occasion in which at least thou mayest fight the battle against odds less tremendously against thee all this passed within the bishop's bosom while mrs proudie still sat with her fixed pencil and the figures of her sum still enduring on the tablets of her memory four pounds seventeen shillings and sevenpence she said to herself of course mr quiverful must have the hospital she said out loud to her lord well my dear i merely wanted to suggest to you that mr slope seems to think that if mr harding be not appointed public feeling in the matter would be against us and that the press might perhaps take it up mr slope seems to think said mrs proudie in a tone of voice which plainly showed the bishop that he was right in looking for a breach in that quarter and what has mr slope to do with it i hope my lord you are not going to allow yourself to be governed by a chaplain and now in her eagerness the lady lost her place in her account certainly not my dear nothing i can assure you is less probable 
but still mr slope may be useful in finding how the wind blows and i really thought that if we could give something else as good to the quiverfuls nonsense said mrs proudie it would be years before you could give them anything else that could suit them half as well and as for the press and the public and all that remember there are two ways of telling a story if mr harding is fool enough to tell his tale we can also tell ours the place was offered to him and he refused it it has now been given to someone else and there's an end of it at least i should think so well my dear i rather believe you are right said the bishop and sneaking out of the room he went downstairs troubled in his mind as to how he should receive the archdeacon on the morrow he felt himself not very well just at present and began to consider that he might not improbably be detained in his room the next morning by an attack of bile he was unfortunately very subject to bilious annoyances mr slope indeed i'll slope him said the indignant matron to her listening progeny i don't know what has come to mr slope i believe he thinks he is to be bishop of barchester himself because i've taken him by the hand and got your father to make him his domestic chaplain he was always full of impudence said olivia i told you so once before mamma olivia however had not thought him too impudent when once before he had proposed to make her mrs slope well olivia i always thought you liked him said augusta who at that moment had some grudge against her sister i always disliked the man because i think him thoroughly vulgar there you're wrong said mrs proudie he's not vulgar at all and what is more he is a soul-stirring eloquent preacher but he must be taught to know his place if he is to remain in this house he has the horridest eyes i ever saw in a man's head said netta and i tell you what he's terribly greedy did you see all the currant pie he ate yesterday when mr slope got home he soon learnt from the bishop as much from his manner as his words that mrs proudie's behests in the matter of the hospital were to be obeyed dr proudie let fall something as to this occasion only uh, and keeping all affairs about patronage exclusively in his own hands but he was quite decided about mr harding and as mr slope did not wish to have both the prelate and the prelatess against him he did not at present see that he could do anything but yield he merely remarked that he would of course carry out the bishop's views and that he was quite sure that if the bishop trusted to his own judgment things in the diocese would certainly be well ordered mr slope knew that if you hit a nail on the head often enough it will penetrate at last he was sitting alone in his room on the same evening when a light knock was made on his door 
and before he could answer it the door was opened and his patroness appeared he was all smiles in a moment but so was not she also she took however the chair that was offered to her and thus began her expostulation mr slope i did not at all approve your conduct the other night with that italian woman any one would have thought that you were her lover good gracious my dear madam said mr slope with a look of horror why she is a married woman that's more than i know said mrs proudie however she chooses to pass for such but married or not such attention as you paid to her was improper i cannot believe that you would wish to give offence in my drawing-room mr slope but i owe it to myself and my daughters to tell you that i disapprove of your conduct mr slope opened wide his huge protruding eyes and stared out of them with a look of well-feigned surprise why mrs proudie said he i did but fetch her something to eat when she said she was hungry and you have called on her since continued she looking at the culprit with the stern look of a detective policeman in the act of declaring himself mr slope turned over in his mind whether it would be well for him to tell this termagant at once that he should call on whom he liked and do what he liked but he remembered that his footing in barchester was not yet sufficiently firm and that it would be better for him to pacify her i certainly called since at dr stanhope's house and certainly saw madame neroni yes and you saw her alone said the episcopal argus undoubtedly i did said mr slope but that was because nobody else happened to be in the room surely it was no fault of mine if the rest of the family were out perhaps not but i assure you mr slope you will fall greatly in my estimation if i find that you allow yourself to be caught by the lures of that woman i know women better than you do mr slope and you may believe me that that signora as she calls herself is not a fitting companion for a strict evangelical unmarried young clergyman how mr slope would have liked to laugh at her had he dared but he did not dare so he merely said i can assure you mrs proudie the lady in question is nothing to me well i hope not mr slope but i have considered it my duty to give you this caution and now there is another thing i feel myself called on to speak about it is your conduct to the bishop mr slope my conduct to the bishop said he now truly surprised and ignorant what the lady alluded to yes mr slope your conduct to the bishop it is by no means what i would wish to see it has the bishop said anything mrs proudie no the bishop has said nothing he probably thinks that any remarks on the matter will come better from me 
who first introduced you to his lordship's notice the fact is mr slope you are a little inclined to take too much upon yourself an angry spot showed itself on mr slope's cheeks and it was with difficulty that he controlled himself but he did so and sat quite silent while the lady went on it is the fault of many young men in your position and therefore the bishop is not inclined at present to resent it you will no doubt soon learn what is required from you and what is not if you will take my advice however you will be careful not to obtrude advice upon the bishop in any matter touching patronage if his lordship wants advice he knows where to look for it and then having added to her counsel a string of platitudes as to what was desirable and what not desirable in the conduct of a strictly evangelical unmarried young clergyman mrs proudie retreated leaving the chaplain to his thoughts the upshot of his thoughts was this that there certainly was not room in the diocese for the energies of both himself and mrs proudie and that it behoved him quickly to ascertain whether his energies or hers were to prevail end of chapter seventeen recording by nick whitley purley united kingdom chapter eighteen of barchester towers by anthony trollope this librivox recording is in the public domain Recording by Nick Whitley, Purley, United Kingdom. Chapter 18. The Widow's Persecution Early on the following morning, Mr. Slope was summoned to the bishop's dressing-room, and went there fully expecting that he should find his lordship very indignant and spirited up by his wife to repeat the rebuke which she had administered on the previous day. Mr. Slope had resolved that at any rate from him he would not stand it and entered the dressing-room in rather a combative disposition but he found the bishop in the most placid and gentlest of humours his lordship complained of being rather unwell had a slight headache and was not quite the thing in his stomach but there was nothing the matter with his temper oh slope said he taking the chaplain's proffered hand archdeacon grantly is to call on me this morning and i really am not fit to see him i fear i must trouble you to see him for me and then dr proudie proceeded to explain what it was that must be said to dr grantly he was to be told in fact in the civilest words in which the tidings could be conveyed that mr harding having refused the wardenship the appointment had been offered to mr quiverful and accepted by him mr slope again pointed out to his patron that he thought he was perhaps not quite wise in his decision and this he did sotto voce but even with this precaution it was not safe to say much and during the little that he did say the bishop made a very slight 
but still a very ominous gesture with his thumb towards the door which opened from his dressing-room to some inner sanctuary mr slope at once took the hint and said no more but he perceived that there was to be confidence between him and his patron that the league desired by him was to be made and that this appointment of mr quiverful was to be the last sacrifice offered on the altar of conjugal obedience all this mr slope read in the slight motion of the bishop's thumb and he read it correctly there was no need of parchments and seals of attestations explanations and professions the bargain was understood between them and mr slope gave the bishop his hand upon it the bishop understood the little extra squeeze and an intelligible gleam of assent twinkled in his eye pray be civil to the archdeacon mr slope said he out loud but make him quite understand that in this matter mr harding has put it out of my power to oblige him it would be a calumny on mrs proudie to suggest that she was sitting in her bedroom with her ear at the keyhole during this interview she had within her a spirit of decorum which prevented her from descending to such baseness to put her ear to a keyhole or to listen at a chink was a trick for a housemaid mrs proudie knew this and therefore did not do it but she stationed herself as near to the door as she well could that she might if possible get the advantage which the housemaid would have had without descending to the housemaid's artifice it was little however that she heard and that little was only sufficient to deceive her she saw nothing of that friendly pressure perceived nothing of that concluded bargain she did not even dream of the treacherous resolves which those two false men had made together to upset her in the pride of her station to dash the cup from her lip before she had drunk of it to sweep away all her power before she had tasted its sweets traitors that they were the husband of her bosom and the outcast whom she had fostered and brought to the warmth of the world's brightest fireside but neither of them had the magnanimity of this woman though two men have thus leagued themselves together against her even yet the battle is not lost mr slope felt pretty sure that dr grantly would decline the honour of seeing him and such turned out to be the case the archdeacon when the palace door was opened to him was greeted by a note mr slope presented his compliments etc etc the bishop was ill in his room and very greatly regretted etc etc mr slope had been charged with the bishop's views and if agreeable to the archdeacon would do himself the honour etc etc the archdeacon however was not agreeable 
and having read his note in the hall crumpled it up in his hand and muttering something about sorrow for his lordship's illness took his leave without sending as much as a verbal message in answer to mr slope's note ill said the archdeacon to himself as he flung himself into his broom the man is absolutely a coward he is afraid to see me ill indeed the archdeacon was never ill himself and did not therefore understand that any one else could in truth be prevented by illness from keeping an appointment he regarded all such excuses as subterfuges and in the present instance he was not far wrong dr grantly desired to be driven to his father-in-law's lodgings in the high street and hearing from the servant that mr harding was at his daughter's followed him to mrs bold's house and there found him the archdeacon was fuming with rage when he got into the drawing-room and had by this time nearly forgotten the pusillanimity of the bishop in the villainy of the chaplain look at that said he throwing mr slope's crumpled note to mr harding i am to be told that if i choose i may have the honour of seeing mr slope and that too after a positive engagement with the bishop but he says the bishop is ill said mr harding pshaw you don't mean to say that you are deceived by such an excuse as that he was well enough yesterday now i tell you what i will see the bishop and i will tell him also very plainly what i think of his conduct i will see him or else barchester will soon be too hot to hold him eleanor was sitting in the room but dr grantly had hardly noticed her in his anger eleanor now said to him with the greatest innocence i wish you had seen mr slope dr grantly because i think perhaps it might have done good the archdeacon turned on her with almost brutal wrath had she at once owned that she had accepted mr slope for her second husband he could hardly have felt more convinced of her belonging body and soul to the slope and proudy party than he now did on hearing her express such a wish as this poor eleanor see him said the archdeacon glaring at her and why am i to be called on to lower myself in the world's esteem and my own by coming in contact with such a man as that i have hitherto lived among gentlemen and do not mean to be dragged into other company by anybody 
poor mr harding well knew what the archdeacon meant but eleanor was as innocent as her own baby she could not understand how the archdeacon could consider himself to be dragged into bad company by condescending to speak to mr slope for a few minutes when the interests of her father might be served by his doing so i was talking for a full hour yesterday to mr slope said she with some little assumption of dignity and i did not find myself lowered by it perhaps not said he but if you'll be good enough to allow me i shall judge for myself in such matters and i tell you what eleanor it will be much better for you if you will allow yourself to be guided also by the advice of those who are your friends if you do not you will be apt to find that you have no friends left who can advise you eleanor blushed up to the roots of her hair but even now she had not the slightest idea of what was passing in the archdeacon's mind no thought of love-making or love-receiving had yet found its way to her heart since the death of poor john bold and if it were possible that such a thought should spring there the man must be far different from mr slope that could give it birth nevertheless eleanor blushed deeply for she felt she was charged with improper conduct and she did so with the more inward pain because her father did not instantly rally to her side that father for whose sake and love she had submitted to be the receptacle of mr slope's confidence she had given a detailed account of all that had passed to her father and though he had not absolutely agreed with her about mr slope's views touching the hospital yet he had said nothing to make her think that she had been wrong in talking to him she was far too angry to humble herself before her brother-in-law indeed she had never accustomed herself to be very abject before him and they had never been confidential allies i do not the least understand what you mean dr grantly said she i do not know that i can accuse myself of doing anything that my friends should disapprove mr slope called here expressly to ask what papa's wishes were about the hospital and as i believe he called with friendly intentions i told him friendly intentions sneered the archdeacon i believe you greatly wrong mr slope continued eleanor but i have explained this to papa already and as you do not seem to approve of what i say dr grantly i will with your permission leave you and papa together so saying she walked slowly out of the room all this made mr harding very unhappy it was quite clear that the archdeacon and his wife had made up their minds that eleanor was going to marry mr slope mr harding could not really bring himself to think that she would do so but yet he could not deny that circumstances made it appear that the man's company was not disagreeable to her she was now constantly seeing him 
and yet she received visits from no other unmarried gentleman she always took his part when his conduct was canvassed although she was aware how personally objectionable he was to her friends then again mr harding felt that if she should choose to become mrs slope he had nothing that he could justly urge against her doing so she had full right to please herself and he as a father could not say that she would disgrace herself by marrying a clergyman who stood so well before the world as mr slope did as for quarrelling with his daughter on account of such a marriage and separating himself from her as the archdeacon had threatened to do that with mr harding would be out of the question if she should determine to marry this man he must get over his aversion as best he could his eleanor his own old companion in their old happy home must still be the friend of his bosom the child of his heart let who would cast her off he would not if it were fated that he should have to sit in his old age at the same table with that man whom of all men he disliked the most he would meet his fate as best he might anything to him would be preferable to the loss of his daughter such being his feelings he hardly knew how to take part with eleanor against the archdeacon or with the archdeacon against eleanor it will be said that he should never have suspected her alas he never should have done so but mr harding was by no means a perfect character in his indecision his weakness his proneness to be led by others his want of self-confidence he was very far from being perfect and then it must be remembered that such a marriage as that which the archdeacon contemplated with disgust which we who know mr slope so well would regard with equal disgust did not appear so monstrous to mr harding because in his charity he did not hate the chaplain as the archdeacon did and as we do he was however very unhappy when his daughter left the room and he had recourse to an old trick of his that was customary to him in his times of sadness he began playing some slow tune upon an imaginary violoncello drawing one hand slowly backwards and forwards as though he held a bow in it and modulating the unreal chords with the other she'll marry that man as sure as two and two make four said the practical archdeacon i hope not i hope not said the father but if she does what can i say to her i have no right to object to him no right exclaimed dr grantly no right as her father he is in my own profession and for aught we know a good man to this the archdeacon would by no means assent 
it was not well however to argue the case against eleanor in her own drawing-room and so they both walked forth and discussed the matter in all its bearings under the elm-trees of the close mr harding also explained to his son-in-law what had been the purport at any rate the alleged purport of mr slope's last visit to the widow he however stated that he could not bring himself to believe that mr slope had any real anxiety such as that he had pretended i cannot forget his demeanour to myself said mr harding and it is not possible that his ideas should have changed so soon i see it all said the archdeacon the sly tartuffe he thinks to buy the daughter by providing for the father he means to show how powerful he is how good he is and how much he is willing to do for her beaux yeux yes i see it all now but we'll be too many for him yet mr harding he said turning to his companion with some gravity and pressing his hand upon the other's arm it would perhaps be better for you to lose the hospital than get it on such terms lose it said mr harding why i've lost it already i don't want it i've made up my mind to do without it i'll withdraw altogether i'll just go and write a line to the bishop and tell him that i withdraw my claim altogether nothing would have pleased him better than to be allowed to escape from the trouble and difficulty in such a manner but he was now going too fast for the archdeacon no 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 we'll do no such thing said dr grantly we'll still have the hospital i hardly doubt but that we'll have it but not by mr slope's assistance if that be necessary we'll lose it but we'll have it spite of his teeth if we can arabin will be at plumstead to-morrow you must come over and talk to him the two now turned into the cathedral library which was used by the clergyman of the close as a sort of ecclesiastical club-room for writing sermons and sometimes letters also for reading theological works and sometimes magazines and newspapers the theological works were not disturbed perhaps quite as often as from the appearance of the building the outside public might have been led to expect here the two allies settled on their course of action the archdeacon wrote a letter to the bishop strongly worded but still respectful in which he put forward his father-in-law's claim to the appointment and expressed his own regret that he had not been able to see his lordship when he called of mr slope he made no mention whatsoever it was then settled that mr harding should go out to plumstead on the following day and after considerable discussion on the matter the archdeacon proposed to ask eleanor there also so as to withdraw her if possible from mr slope's attentions 
a week or two said he may teach her what he is and while she is there she will be out of harm's way mr slope won't come there after her eleanor was not a little surprised when her brother-in-law came back and very civilly pressed her to go out to plumstead with her father she instantly perceived that her father had been fighting her battles for her behind her back she felt thankful to him and for his sake she would not show her resentment to the archdeacon by refusing his invitation but she could not she said go on the morrow she had an invitation to drink tea at the stanhopes which she had promised to accept she would she added go with her father on the next day if he would wait or she would follow him the stanhopes said dr grantly i did not know you were so intimate with them i did not know it myself said she till miss stanhope called yesterday however i like her very much and i have promised to go and play chess with some of them have they a party there said the archdeacon still fearful of mr slope oh no said eleanor miss stanhope said there was to be nobody at all but she had heard that mary had left me for a few weeks and she had learnt from someone that i play chess and so she came over on purpose to ask me to go in well that's very friendly said the ex-warden they certainly do look more like foreigners than english people but i dare say they are none the worse for that the archdeacon was inclined to look upon the stanhopes with favourable eyes and had nothing to object on the matter it was therefore arranged that mr harding should postpone his visit to plumstead for one day and then take with him eleanor the baby and the nurse mr slope is certainly becoming of some importance in barchester end of chapter eighteen recording by nick whitley purley united kingdom chapter nineteen of barchester towers by anthony trollope this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by nick whitley purley united kingdom chapter nineteen barchester by moonlight there was much cause for grief and occasional perturbation of spirits in the stanhope family but yet they rarely seemed to be grieved or to be disturbed it was the peculiar gift of each of them that each was able to bear his or her own burden without complaint and perhaps without sympathy they habitually looked on the sunny side of the wall if there was a gleam on either side for them to look at if there was none they endured the shade with an indifference which if not stoical answered the end at which the stoics aimed old stanhope could not but feel that he had ill performed his duties as a father and a clergyman and could hardly look forward to his own death without grief at the position in which he would leave his family his income for many years had been as high as three thousand pounds a year and yet they had among them no other provision than their mother's fortune of ten thousand pounds he had not only spent his income but was in debt yet with all this he seldom showed much outward sign of trouble it was the same with the mother if she added little to the pleasures of her children 
she detracted still less she neither grumbled at her lot nor spoke much of her past or future sufferings as long as she had a maid to adjust her dress and had those dresses well made nature with her was satisfied it was the same with the children charlotte never rebuked her father with the prospect of their future poverty nor did it seem to grieve her that she was becoming an old maid so quickly her temper was rarely ruffled and if we might judge by her appearance she was always happy the signora was not so sweet-tempered but she possessed much enduring courage she seldom complained never indeed to her family though she had a cause for affliction which would have utterly broken down the heart of most women as beautiful as she and as devoid of all religious support yet she bore her suffering in silence or alluded to it only to elicit the sympathy and stimulate the admiration of the men with whom she flirted as to bertie one would have imagined from the sound of his voice and the gleam of his eye that he had not a sorrow nor a care in the world nor had he he was incapable of anticipating to-morrow's griefs the prospect of future want no more disturbed his appetite than does that of the butcher's knife disturb the appetite of the sheep such was the usual tenor of their way but there were rare exceptions occasionally the father would allow an angry glance to fall from his eye and the lion would send forth a low dangerous roar as though he meditated some deed of blood occasionally also madame neroni would become bitter against mankind more than usually antagonistic to the world's decencies and would seem as though she was about to break from her moorings and allow herself to be carried forth by the tide of her feelings to utter ruin and shipwreck she however like the rest of them had no real feelings could feel no true passion in that was her security before she resolved on any contemplated escapade she would make a small calculation and generally summed up that the stanhope villa or even barchester close was better than the world at large they were most irregular in their hours the father was generally the earliest in the breakfast parlour and charlotte would soon follow and give him his coffee but the others breakfasted anywhere anyhow and at any time on the morning after the archdeacon's futile visit to the palace dr stanhope came downstairs with an ominously dark look about his eyebrows his white locks were rougher than usual and he breathed thickly and loudly as he took his seat in his armchair he had open letters in his hand and when charlotte came into the room he was still reading them she went up and kissed him as was her wont but he hardly noticed her as she did so and she knew at once that something was the matter what's the meaning of that said he throwing over the table a letter with a milan postmark charlotte was a little frightened as she took it up but her mind was relieved when she saw that it was merely the bill of their italian milliner 
the sum total was certainly large but not so large as to create an important row it's for our clothes papa for six months before we came here the three of us can't dress for nothing you know nothing indeed said he looking at the figures which in milanese denominations were certainly monstrous the man should have sent it to me said charlotte i wish he had with all my heart if you would have paid it i see enough in it to know that three quarters of it are for madeline she has little else to amuse her sir said charlotte with true good-nature and i suppose he has nothing else to amuse him said the doctor throwing over another letter to his daughter it was from some member of the family of sidonia and politely requested the father to pay a small trifle of seven hundred pounds being the amount of a bill discounted in favour of mr ethelbert stanhope and now overdue for a period of nine months charlotte read the letter slowly folded it up and put it under the edge of the tea-tray i suppose he has nothing to amuse him but discounting bills with jews does he think i'll pay that i am sure he thinks no such thing said she and who does he think will pay it as far as honesty goes i suppose it won't much matter if it is never paid said she i dare say he got very little of it i suppose it won't much matter either said the father if he goes to prison and rots there it seems to me that that's the other alternative dr stanhope spoke of the custom of his youth but his daughter though she had lived so long abroad was much more completely versed in the ways of the english world if the man arrests him said she he must go through the court it is thus thou great family of sidonia it is thus that we gentiles treat thee when in our extremest need thou and thine have aided us with mountains of gold as big as lions and occasionally with wine warrants and orders for dozens of dressing-cases what and become an insolvent said the doctor he's that already said charlotte wishing always to get over a difficulty what a condition said the doctor for the son of a clergyman of the church of england i don't see why clergymen's sons should pay their debts more than other young men said charlotte he's had as much from me since he left school as is held sufficient for the eldest son of many a nobleman said the angry father well sir said charlotte give him another chance what said the doctor do you mean that i am to pay that jew oh no i wouldn't pay him he must take his chance and if the worst comes to the worst bertie must go abroad but i want you to be civil to bertie and let him remain here as long as we stop he has a plan in his head that may put him on his feet after all has he any plan for following up his profession oh he'll do that too but that must follow he's thinking of getting married just at that moment the door opened and bertie came in whistling the doctor immediately devoted himself to his egg 
and allowed bertie to whistle himself round to his sister's side without noticing him charlotte gave a sign to him with her eye first glancing at her father and then at the letter the corner of which peeped out from under the tea-tray bertie saw and understood and with the quiet motion of a cat he abstracted the letter and made himself acquainted with its contents the doctor however had seen him deep as he appeared to be mersed in his egg-shell and said in his harshest voice well sir do you know that gentleman yes sir said bertie i have a sort of acquaintance with him but none that can justify him in troubling you if you will allow me sir i will answer this at any rate i shan't said the father and then he added after a pause is it true sir that you owe the man seven hundred pounds well said bertie i think i should be inclined to dispute the amount if i were in a condition to pay him such of it as i really do owe him has he your bill for seven hundred pounds said the father speaking very loudly and very angrily well i believe he has said bertie but all the money i ever got from him was a hundred and fifty pounds and what became of the five hundred and fifty why sir the commission was a hundred pounds or so and i took the remainder in paving-stones and rocking-horses paving-stones and rocking-horses said the doctor where are they oh sir i suppose they are in london somewhere but i'll inquire if you wish for them he's an idiot said the doctor and it's sheer folly to waste more money on him nothing can save him from ruin and so saying the unhappy father walked out of the room would the governor like to have the paving-stones said bertie to his sister i'll tell you what said she if you don't take care you will find yourself loose upon the world without even a house over your head you don't know him as well as i do he is very angry bertie stroked his big beard sipped his tea chatted over his misfortunes in a half-comic half-serious tone and ended by promising his sister that he would do his very best to make himself agreeable to the widow bold then charlotte followed her father to his own room softened down his wrath and persuaded him to say nothing more about the jew bill discounter at any rate for a few weeks he even went so far as to say he would pay the seven hundred pounds or at any rate settle the bill if he saw a certainty of his son's securing for himself anything like a decent provision in life nothing was said openly between them about poor eleanor but the father and the daughter understood each other they all met together in the drawing-room at nine o'clock in perfect good humour with each other and about that hour mrs bold was announced she had never been in the house before though she had of course called and now she felt it strange to find herself there in her usual evening dress entering the drawing-room of these strangers in this friendly unceremonious way as though she had known them all her life but in three minutes they made her at home charlotte tripped downstairs and took her bonnet from her and bertie came to relieve her from her shawl 
and the signora smiled on her as she could smile when she chose to be gracious and the old doctor shook hands with her in a kind benedictory manner that went to her heart at once and made her feel that he must be a good man she had not been seated for above five minutes when the door again opened and mr slope was announced she felt rather surprised because she was told that nobody was to be there and it was very evident from the manner of some of them that mr slope was not unexpected but still there was not much in it in such invitations a bachelor or two more or less are always spoken of as nobodies and there was no reason why mr slope should not drink tea at dr stanhope's as well as eleanor herself he however was very much surprised and not very much gratified at finding that his own embryo spouse made one of the party he had come there to gratify himself by gazing on madame neroni's beauty and listening to and returning her flattery and though he had not owned as much to himself he still felt that if he spent the evening as he had intended to do he might probably not thereby advance his suit with mrs bold the signora who had no idea of a rival received mr slope with her usual marks of distinction as he took her hand she made some confidential communication to him in a low voice declaring that she had a plan to communicate to him after tea and was evidently prepared to go on with her work of reducing the chaplain to a state of captivity poor mr slope was rather beside himself he thought that eleanor could not but have learnt from his demeanour that he was an admirer of her own and he had also flattered himself that the idea was not unacceptable to her what would she think of him if he now devoted himself to a married woman but eleanor was not inclined to be severe in her criticisms on him in this respect and felt no annoyance of any kind when she found herself seated between bertie and charlotte stanhope she had no suspicion of mr slope's intentions she had no suspicion even of the suspicion of other people but still she felt well pleased not to have mr slope too near to her and she was not ill-pleased to have bertie stanhope near her it was rarely indeed that he failed to make an agreeable impression on strangers with a bishop indeed who thought much of his own dignity it was possible that he might fail but hardly with a young and pretty woman he possessed the tact of becoming instantly intimate with women without giving rise to any fear of impertinence he had about him somewhat of the propensities of a tame cat it seemed quite natural that he should be petted caressed and treated with familiar good-nature and that in return he should purr and be sleek and graceful and above all never show his claws like other tame cats however he had his claws and sometimes made them dangerous 
when tea was over charlotte went to the open window and declared loudly that the full harvest moon was much too beautiful to be disregarded and called them all to look at it to tell the truth there was but one there who cared much about the moon's beauty and that one was not charlotte but she knew how valuable an aid to her purpose the chaste goddess might become and could easily create a little enthusiasm for the purpose of the moment eleanor and bertie were soon with her the doctor was now quiet in his armchair and mrs stanhope in hers both prepared for slumber are you a huelite or a brewsterite or a tothermanite mrs bold said charlotte who knew a little about everything and had read about a third of each of the books to which she alluded oh said eleanor i have not read any of the books but i feel sure that there is one man in the moon at least if not more you don't believe in the pulpy gelatinous matter said bertie i heard about that said eleanor and i really think it's almost wicked to talk in such a manner how can we argue about god's power in the other stars from the laws which he has given for our rule in this one how oh, indeed said bertie why shouldn't there be a race of salamanders in venus and even if there be nothing but fish in jupiter why shouldn't the fish there be as wide awake as the men and women here that would be saying very little for them said charlotte i am for dr Ewell myself for i do not think that men and women are worth being repeated in such countless worlds there may be souls in other stars but i doubt their having any bodies attached to them but come mrs bold let us put our bonnets on and walk round the close if we are to discuss sidereal questions we shall do so much better under the towers of the cathedral than stuck in this narrow window mrs bold made no objection and a party was made to walk out charlotte stanhope well knew the rule as to three being no company and she had therefore to induce her sister to allow mr slope to accompany them come mr slope she said i'm sure you'll join us we shall be in again in a quarter of an hour madeline madeline read in her eye all that she had to say knew her object and as she had to depend on her sister for so many of her amusements she felt that she must yield it was hard to be left alone while others of her own age walked out to feel the soft influence of the bright night but it would be harder still to be without the sort of sanction which charlotte gave to all her flirtations and intrigues charlotte's eye told her that she must give up just at present for the good of the family and so madeline obeyed but charlotte's eyes said nothing of the sort to mr slope he had no objection at all to the tete-a-tete with the signora which the departure of the other three would allow him and gently whispered to her i shall not leave you alone oh yes said she go pray go pray go for my sake do not think that i am so selfish it is understood that nobody is kept within for me 
you will understand this too when you know me better pray join them mr slope but when you come in speak to me for five minutes before you leave us mr slope understood that he was to go and he therefore joined the party in the hall he would have had no objection at all to this arrangement if he could have secured mrs bold's arm but this of course was out of the question indeed his fate was very soon settled for no sooner had he reached the hall door than miss stanhope put her hand within his arm and bertie walked off with eleanor just as naturally as though she were already his own property and so they sauntered forth first they walked round the close according to their avowed intent then they went under the old arched gateway below st cuthbert's little church and then they turned behind the grounds of the bishop's palace and so on till they came to the bridge just at the edge of the town from which passers-by can look down into the gardens of hiram's hospital and here charlotte and mr slope who were in advance stopped till the other two came up to them mr slope knew that the gable ends and old brick chimneys which stood up so prettily in the moonlight were those of mr harding's late abode and would not have stopped on such a spot in such company if he could have avoided it but miss stanhope would not take the hint which he tried to give this is a very pretty place mrs bold said charlotte by far the prettiest place near barchester i wonder your father gave it up it was a very pretty place and now by the deceitful light of the moon looked twice larger twice prettier twice more antiquely picturesque than it would have done in truth-telling daylight who does not know the air of complex multiplicity and the mysterious interesting grace which the moon always lends to old gabled buildings half surrounded as was the hospital by fine trees as seen from the bridge on the night of which we are speaking mr harding's late abode did look very lovely and though eleanor did not grieve at her father's having left it she felt at the moment an intense wish that he might be allowed to return he is going to return to it almost immediately is he not asked bertie eleanor made no immediate reply many such a question passes unanswered without the notice of the questioner but such was not now the case they all remained silent as though expecting her to reply and after a moment or two charlotte said i believe it is settled that mr harding returns to the hospital is it not i don't think anything about it is settled yet said eleanor but it must be a matter of course said bertie that is if your father wishes it who else on earth could hold it after what has occurred eleanor quietly made her companion understand that the matter was one which she could not discuss in the present company and then they passed on charlotte said she would go a short way up the hill out of the town so as to look back upon the towers of the cathedral and as eleanor leant upon bertie's arm for assistance in the walk she told him how the matter stood between her father and the bishop and he said bertie 
pointing on to mr slope what part does he take in it eleanor explained how mr slope had at first endeavoured to tyrannise over her father but how he had latterly come round and done all he could to talk the bishop over in mr harding's favour but my father she said is hardly inclined to trust him they all say he is so arrogant to the old clergyman of the city take my word for it said bertie your father is right if i am not very much mistaken that man is both arrogant and false they strolled up to the top of the hill and then returned through the fields by a footpath which leads by a small wooden bridge or rather a plank with a rustic rail to it over the river to the other side of the cathedral from that at which they had started they had thus walked round the bishop's grounds through which the river runs and round the cathedral and adjacent fields and it was past eleven before they reached the doctor's door it is very late said eleanor it will be a shame to disturb your mother again at such an hour oh said charlotte laughing you won't disturb mamma i dare say she is in bed by this time and madeline would be furious if you did not come in and see her come bertie take mrs bold's bonnet from her they went upstairs and found the signora alone reading she looked somewhat sad and melancholy but not more so perhaps than was sufficient to excite additional interest in the bosom of mr slope and she was soon deep in whispered intercourse with that happy gentleman who was allowed to find a resting-place on her sofa the signora had a way of whispering that was peculiarly her own and was exactly the reverse of that which prevails among great tragedians the great tragedian hisses out a positive whisper made with bated breath and produced by inarticulated tongue-formed sounds but yet he is audible through the whole house the signora however used no hisses and produced all her words in a clear silver tone but they could only be heard by the ear into which they were poured charlotte hurried and scurried about the room hither and thither doing or pretending to do many things then saying something about seeing her mother ran upstairs eleanor was thus left alone with bertie and she hardly felt an hour fly by her to give bertie his due credit he could not have played his cards better he did not make love to her nor sigh nor look languishing but he was amusing and familiar yet respectful and when he left eleanor at her own door at one o'clock which he did by the by with the assistance of the now jealous slope she thought that he was one of the most agreeable men and the stanhopes decidedly the most agreeable family that she had ever met End of chapter nineteen recording by nick whitley purley united kingdom chapter twenty of barchester towers by anthony trollope this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by nick whitley purley united kingdom chapter twenty mr arabin the rev francis arabin 
fellow of lazarus late professor of poetry at oxford and present vicar of st ewold in the diocese of barchester must now be introduced personally to the reader he is worthy of a new volume and as he will fill a conspicuous place in it it is desirable that he should be made to stand before the reader's eye by the aid of such portraiture as the author is able to produce it is to be regretted that no mental method of daguerreotype or photography has yet been discovered by which the characters of men can be reduced to writing and put into grammatical language with an unerring precision of truthful description how often does the novelist feel ay and the historian also and the biographer that he has conceived within his mind and accurately depicted on the tablet of his brain the full character and personage of a man and that nevertheless when he flies to pen and ink to perpetuate the portrait his words forsake elude disappoint and play the deuce with him till at the end of a dozen pages the man described has no more resemblance to the man conceived than the signboard at the corner of the street has to the duke of cambridge and yet such mechanical descriptive skill would hardly give more satisfaction to the reader than the skill of the photographer does to the anxious mother desirous to possess an absolute duplicate of her beloved child the likeness is indeed true but it is a dull dead unfeeling inauspicious likeness the face is indeed there and those looking at it will know at once whose image it is but the owner of the face will not be proud of the resemblance there is no royal road to learning no short-cut to the acquirement of any valuable art let photographers and daguerreotypers do what they will and improve as they may with further skill on that which skill has already done they will never achieve a portrait of the human face divine let biographers novelists and the rest of us groan as we may under the burdens which we so often feel too heavy for our shoulders we must either bear them up like men or own ourselves too weak for the work we have undertaken there is no way of writing well and also of writing easily labor omnia vincit improbus such should be the chosen motto of every labourer and it may be that labour if adequately enduring may suffice at last to produce even some not untrue resemblance of the rev francis arabin of his doings in the world and of the sort of fame which he has achieved enough has been already said it has also been said that he is forty years of age and still unmarried he was the younger son of a country gentleman of small fortune in the north of england at an early age he went to winchester and was intended by his father for new college but though studious as a boy he was not studious within the prescribed limits and at the age of eighteen he left school with a character for talent but without a scholarship all that he had obtained over and above the advantage of his character was a gold medal for english verse and hence was derived a strong presumption on the part of his friends that he was destined 
to add another name to the imperishable list of english poets from winchester he went to oxford and was entered as a commoner at balliol here his special career very soon commenced he utterly eschewed the society of fast men gave no wine-parties kept no horses rode no boats joined no rows and was the pride of his college tutor such at least was his career till he had taken his little go and then he commenced a course of action which though not less creditable to himself as a man was hardly so much to the taste of his tutor he became a member of a vigorous debating society and rendered himself remarkable there for humorous energy though always in earnest yet his earnestness was always droll to be true in his ideas unanswerable in his syllogisms and just in his aspirations was not enough for him he had failed failed in his own opinion as well as that of others when others came to know him if he could not reduce the arguments of his opponents to an absurdity and conquer both by wit and reason to say that his object was ever to raise a laugh would be most untrue he hated such common and unnecessary evidence of satisfaction on the part of his hearers a joke that required to be laughed at was with him not worth uttering he could appreciate by a keener sense than that of his ears the success of his wit and would see in the eyes of his auditors whether or no he was understood and appreciated he had been a religious lad before he left school that is he had addicted himself to a party in religion and having done so had received that benefit which most men do who become partisans in such a cause we are much too apt to look at schism in our church as an unmitigated evil moderate schism if there may be such a thing at any rate calls attention to the subject draws in supporters who would otherwise have been inattentive to the matter and teaches men to think upon religion how great an amount of good of this description has followed that movement in the church of england which commenced with the publication of froude's remains as a boy young arabin took up the cudgels on the side of the tractarians and at oxford he sat for a while at the feet of the great newman to this cause he lent all his faculties for it he concocted verses for it he made speeches for it he scintillated the brightest sparks of his quiet wit for it he ate and drank and dressed and had his being in due process of time he took his degree and wrote himself b a but he did not do so with any remarkable amount of academical eclat he had occupied himself too much with high church matters and the polemics politics and outward demonstrations usually concurrent with high churchmanship to devote himself with sufficient vigour to the acquisition of a double first he was not a double first nor even a first-class man but he revenged himself on the university by putting firsts and double firsts out of fashion for the year and laughing down a species of pedantry which at the age of twenty-three 
leaves no room in a man's mind for graver subjects than conic sections or greek accents greek accents however and conic sections were esteemed necessaries at balliol and there was no admittance there for mr arabin within the list of its fellows lazarus however the richest and most comfortable abode of oxford dons opened its bosom to the young champion of a church militant mr arabin was ordained and became a fellow soon after taking his degree and shortly after that was chosen professor of poetry and now came the moment of his great danger after many mental struggles and an agony of doubt which may be well surmised the great prophet of the tractarians confessed himself a roman catholic mr newman left the church of england and with him carried many a waverer he did not carry off mr arabin but the escape which that gentleman had was a very narrow one he left oxford for a while that he might meditate in complete peace on the step which appeared to him to be all but unavoidable and shut himself up in a little village on the seashore of one of our remotest counties that he might learn by communing with his own soul whether or no he could with a safe conscience remain within the pale of his mother church things would have gone badly with him there had he been left entirely to himself everything was against him all his worldly interests required him to remain a protestant and he looked on his worldly interests as a legion of foes to get the better of whom was a point of extremest honour in his then state of ecstatic agony such a conquest would have cost him little he could easily have thrown away all his livelihood but it cost him much to get over the idea that by choosing the church of england he should be open in his own mind to the charge that he had been led to such a choice by unworthy motives then his heart was against him he loved with a strong and eager love the man who had hitherto been his guide and yearned to follow his footsteps his tastes were against him the ceremonies and pomps of the church of rome their august feasts and solemn fasts invited his imagination and pleased his eye his flesh was against him how great an aid would it be to a poor weak wavering man to be constrained to high moral duties self-denial obedience and chastity by laws which were certain in their enactments and not to be broken without loud palpable unmistakable sin then his faith was against him he required to believe so much panted so eagerly to give signs of his belief deemed it so insufficient to wash himself simply in the waters of jordan that some great deed such as that of forsaking everything for a true church had for him allurements almost past withstanding mr arabin was at this time a very young man and when he left oxford for his far retreat was much too confident in his powers of fence and too apt to look down on the ordinary sense of ordinary people 
to expect aid in the battle that he had to fight from any chance inhabitants of the spot which he had selected but providence was good to him there in that all but desolate place on the storm-beat shore of that distant sea he met one who gradually calmed his mind quieted his imagination and taught him something of a christian's duty when mr arabin left oxford he was inclined to look upon the rural clergymen of most english parishes almost with contempt it was his ambition should he remain within the fold of their church to do somewhat towards redeeming and rectifying their inferiority and to assist in infusing energy and faith into the hearts of christian ministers who were as he thought too often satisfied to go through life without much show of either and yet it was from such a one that mr arabin in his extremest need received that aid which he so much required it was from the poor curate of a small cornish parish that he first learnt to know that the highest laws for the governance of a christian's duty must act from within and not from without that no man can become a serviceable servant solely by obedience to written edicts and that the safety which he was about to seek within the gates of rome was no other than the selfish freedom from personal danger which the bad soldier attempts to gain who counterfeits illness on the eve of battle mr arabin returned to oxford a humbler but a better and a happier man and from that time forth he put his shoulder to the wheel as a clergyman of the church for which he had been educated the intercourse of those among whom he familiarly lived kept him staunch to the principles of that system of the church to which he had always belonged since his severance from mr newman no one had had so strong an influence over him as the head of his college during the time of his expected apostasy dr gwynne had not felt much predisposition in favour of the young fellow though a high churchman himself within moderate limits dr gwynne felt no sympathy with men who could not satisfy their faiths with the thirty-nine articles he regarded the enthusiasm of such as newman as a state of mind more nearly allied to madness than to religion and when he saw it evinced by very young men he was inclined to attribute a good deal of it to vanity dr gwynne himself though a religious man was also a thoroughly practical man of the world and he regarded with no favourable eye the tenets of any one who looked on the two things as incompatible when he found that mr arabin was a half roman he began to regret all he had done towards bestowing a fellowship on so unworthy a recipient and when again he learnt that mr arabin would probably complete his journey to rome he regarded with some satisfaction the fact that in such case the fellowship would be again vacant when however mr arabin returned and professed himself a confirmed protestant the master of lazarus again opened his arms to him and gradually he became the pet of the college for some little time he was saturnine silent 
and unwilling to take any prominent part in university broils but gradually his mind recovered or rather made its tone and he became known as a man always ready at a moment's notice to take up the cudgels in opposition to anything that savoured of an evangelical bearing he was great in sermons great on platforms great at after-dinner conversations and always pleasant as well as great he took delight in elections served on committees opposed tooth and nail all projects of university reform and talked jovially over his glass of port of the ruin to be anticipated by the church and of the sacrilege daily committed by the whigs the ordeal through which he had gone in resisting the blandishments of the lady of rome had certainly done much towards the strengthening of his character although in small and outward matters he was self-confident enough nevertheless in things affecting the inner man he aimed at a humility of spirit which would never have been attractive to him but for that visit to the coast of cornwall this visit he now repeated every year such is an interior view of mr arabin at the time when he accepted the living of st ewold exteriorly he was not a remarkable person he was above the middle height well made and very active his hair which had been jet black was now tinged with grey but his face bore no sign of years it would perhaps be wrong to say that he was handsome but his face was nevertheless pleasant to look upon the cheekbones were rather too high for beauty and the formation of the forehead too massive and heavy but the eyes nose and mouth were perfect there was a continual play of lambent fire about his eyes which gave promise of either pathos or humour whenever he essayed to speak and that promise was rarely broken there was a gentle play about his mouth which declared that his wit never descended to sarcasm and that there was no ill-nature in his repartee mr arabin was a popular man among women but more so as a general than a special favourite living as a fellow at oxford marriage with him had been out of the question and it may be doubted whether he had ever allowed his heart to be touched though belonging to a church in which celibacy is not the required lot of its ministers he had come to regard himself as one of those clergymen to whom to be a bachelor is almost a necessity he had never looked for parochial duty and his career at oxford was utterly incompatible with such domestic joys as a wife and nursery he looked on women therefore in the same light that one sees them regarded by many romish priests he liked to have near him that which was pretty and amusing but women generally were little more to him than children he talked to them without putting out all his powers and listened to them without any idea that what he should hear from them could either actuate his conduct or influence his opinion such was mr arabin the new vicar of st ewold who is going to stay with the grantlys at plumstead episcopi mr arabin reached plumstead the day before mr harding and eleanor 
and the grantly family were thus enabled to make his acquaintance and discuss his qualifications before the arrival of the other guests griselda was surprised to find that he looked so young but she told florinda her younger sister when they had retired for the night that he did not talk at all like a young man and she decided with the authority that seventeen has over sixteen that he was not at all nice although his eyes were lovely as usual sixteen implicitly acceded to the dictum of seventeen in such a matter and said that he certainly was not nice they then branched off on the relative merits of other clerical bachelors in the vicinity and both determined without any feeling of jealousy between them that a certain rev augustus green was by many degrees the most estimable of the lot the gentleman in question had certainly much in his favour as having a comfortable allowance from his father he could devote the whole proceeds of his curacy to violet gloves and unexceptionable neckties having thus fixedly resolved that the newcomer had nothing about him to shake the pre-eminence of the exalted green the two girls went to sleep in each other's arms contented with themselves and the world mrs grantly at first sight came to much the same conclusion about her husband's favourite as her daughters had done though in seeking to measure his relative value she did not compare him to mr green indeed she made no comparison by name between him and any one else but she remarked to her husband that one person's swans were very often another person's geese thereby clearly showing that mr arabin had not yet proved his qualifications in swanhood to her satisfaction well susan said he rather offended at hearing his friend spoken of so disrespectfully if you take mr arabin for a goose i cannot say that i think very highly of your discrimination a goose no of course he's not a goose i've no doubt he's a very clever man but you're so matter-of-fact archdeacon when it suits your purpose that one can't trust oneself to any façon de parler i've no doubt mr arabin is a very valuable man at oxford and that he'll be a good vicar at st ewold all i mean is that having passed one evening with him i don't find him to be absolutely a paragon in the first place if i am not mistaken he is a little inclined to be conceited of all the men that i know intimately said the archdeacon arabin is in my opinion the most free from any taint of self-conceit his fault is that he's too diffident perhaps so said the lady only i must own i did not find it out this evening nothing further was said about him dr grantly thought that his wife was abusing mr arabin merely because he had praised him and mrs grantly knew that it was useless arguing for or against any person in favour of or in opposition to whom the archdeacon had already pronounced a strong opinion in truth they were both right mr arabin was a diffident man in social intercourse with those whom he did not intimately know 
when placed in situations which it was his business to fill and discussing matters with which it was his duty to be conversant mr arabin was from habit brazen-faced enough when standing on a platform in exeter hall no man would be less mazed than he by the eyes of the crowd before him for such was the work which his profession had called on him to perform but he shrank from a strong expression of opinion in general society and his doing so not uncommonly made it appear that he considered the company not worth the trouble of his energy he was averse to dictate when the place did not seem to him to justify dictation and as those subjects on which people wished to hear him speak were such as he was accustomed to treat with decision he generally shunned the traps that were laid to allure him into discussion and by doing so not infrequently subjected himself to such charges as those brought against him by mrs grantly mr arabin as he sat at his open window enjoying the delicious moonlight and gazing at the grey towers of the church which stood almost within the rectory grounds little dreamt that he was the subject of so many friendly or unfriendly criticisms considering how much we are all given to discuss the characters of others and discuss them often not in the strictest spirit of charity it is singular how little we are inclined to think that others can speak ill-naturedly of us and how angry and hurt we are when proof reaches us that they have done so it is hardly too much to say that we all of us occasionally speak of our dearest friends in a manner in which those dearest friends would very little like to hear themselves mentioned and that we nevertheless expect that our dearest friends shall invariably speak of us as though they were blind to all our faults but keenly alive to every shade of our virtues it did not occur to mr arabin that he was spoken of at all it seemed to him when he compared himself with his host that he was a person of so little consequence to any that he was worth no one's words or thoughts he was utterly alone in the world as regarded domestic ties and those inner familiar relations which are hardly possible between others than husbands and wives parents and children or brothers and sisters he had often discussed with himself the necessity of such bonds for a man's happiness in this world and had generally satisfied himself with the answer that happiness in this world is not a necessity herein he deceived himself or rather tried to do so he like others yearned for the enjoyment of whatever he saw enjoyable and though he attempted with the modern stoicism of so many christians to make himself believe that joy and sorrow were matters which here should be held as perfectly indifferent these things were not indifferent to him he was tired of his oxford rooms and his college life he regarded the wife and children of his friend with something like envy he all but coveted the pleasant drawing-room with its pretty windows opening on to lawns and flower-beds the apparel of the comfortable house and above all the air of home which encompassed it all it will be said that no time can have been so fitted for such desires on his part as this 
when he had just possessed himself of a country parish of a living among fields and gardens of a house which a wife would grace it is true there was a difference between the opulence of plumstead and the modest economy of st ewald but surely mr arabin was not a man to sigh after wealth of all men his friends would have unanimously declared he was the last to do so but how little our friends know us in his period of stoical rejection of this world's happiness he had cast from him as utter dross all anxiety as to fortune he had as it were proclaimed himself to be indifferent to promotion and those who chiefly admired his talents and would mainly have exerted themselves to secure to them their deserved reward had taken him at his word and now if the truth must out he felt himself disappointed disappointed not by them but by himself the day-dream of his youth was over and at the age of forty he felt that he was not fit to work in the spirit of an apostle he had mistaken himself and learnt his mistake when it was past remedy he had professed himself indifferent to mitres and diaconal residences to rich livings and pleasant glebes and now he had to own to himself that he was sighing for the good things of other men on whom in his pride he had ventured to look down not for wealth in its vulgar sense had he ever sighed not for the enjoyment of rich things had he ever longed but for the allotted share of worldly bliss which a wife and children and happy home could give him for that usual amount of comfort which he had ventured to reject as unnecessary for him he did now feel that he would have been wiser to have searched he knew that his talents his position and his friends would have won for him promotion had he put himself in the way of winning it instead of doing so he had allowed himself to be persuaded to accept a living which would give him an income of some three hundred pounds a year should he by marrying throw up his fellowship such at the age of forty was the worldly result of labour which the world had chosen to regard as successful the world also thought that mr arabin was in his own estimation sufficiently paid alas alas the world was mistaken and mr arabin was beginning to ascertain that such was the case and here may i beg the reader not to be hard in his judgment upon this man is not the state at which he has arrived the natural result of efforts to reach that which is not the condition of humanity is not modern stoicism built though it be on christianity as great an outrage on human nature as was the stoicism of the ancients the philosophy of zeno was built on true laws but on true laws misunderstood and therefore misapplied it is the same with our stoics here who would teach us that wealth and worldly comfort and happiness on earth are not worth the search alas for a doctrine which can find no believing pupils and no true teachers 
the case of mr arabin was the more singular as he belonged to a branch of the church of england well inclined to regard its temporalities with avowed favour and had habitually lived with men who were accustomed to much worldly comfort but such was his idiosyncrasy that these very facts had produced within him in early life a state of mind that was not natural to him he was content to be a high churchman if he could be so on principles of his own and could strike out a course showing a marked difference from those with whom he consorted he was ready to be a partisan as long as he was allowed to have a course of action and of thought unlike that of his party his party had indulged him and he began to feel that his party was right and himself wrong just when such a conviction was too late to be of service to him he discovered when such discovery was no longer serviceable that it would have been worth his while to have worked for the usual pay assigned to work in this world and have earned a wife and children with a carriage for them to sit in to have earned a pleasant dining-room in which his friends could drink his wine and the power of walking up the high street of his country town with the knowledge that all its tradesmen would have gladly welcomed him within their doors other men arrived at those convictions in their start in life and so worked up to them to him they had come when they were too late to be of use it has been said that mr arabin was a man of pleasantry and it may be thought that such a state of mind as that described would be antagonistic to humour but surely such is not the case wit is the outward mental casing of the man and has no more to do with the inner mind of thoughts and feelings than have the rich brocaded garments of the priest at the altar with the asceticism of the anchorite below them whose skin is tormented with sackcloth and whose body is half flayed with rods nay will not such a one often rejoice more than any other in the rich show of his outer apparel will it not be food for his pride to feel that he groans inwardly while he shines outwardly so it is with the mental efforts which men make those which they show forth daily to the world are often the opposites of the inner workings of the spirit in the archdeacon's drawing-room mr arabin had sparkled with his usual unaffected brilliancy but when he retired to his bedroom he sat there sad at his open window repining within himself that he also had no wife no bands no soft sward of lawn duly mown for him to lie on no herd of attendant curates no bowings from the banker's clerks no rich rectory that apostleship that he had thought of had evaded his grasp and he was now only vicar of st ewold's with a taste for a mitre truly he had fallen between two stools end of chapter twenty recording by nick whitley purley united kingdom chapter twenty one of barchester towers by anthony trollope 
This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Nick Whitley, Purley, United Kingdom. Chapter Twenty One: St. Ewold's Parsonage. When Mr. Harding and Mrs. Bold reached the rectory on the following morning, the archdeacon and his friend were at St. Ewold's. They had gone over that the new vicar might inspect his church and be introduced to the squire, and were not expected back before dinner. Mr. Harding rambled out by himself, and strolled, as was his wont at Plumstead, about the lawn and round the church, and as he did so the two sisters naturally fell into conversation about Barchester. There was not much sisterly confidence between them. Mrs. Grantly was ten years older than Eleanor, and had been married while Eleanor was yet a child. They had never, therefore, poured into each other's ears their hopes and loves, and now that one was a wife and the other a widow, it was not probable that they would begin to do so. They lived too much asunder to be able to fall into that kind of intercourse which makes confidence between sisters almost a necessity. Moreover, that which is so easy at eighteen is often very difficult at twenty-eight. Mrs. Grantly knew this, and did not, therefore, expect confidence from her sister. Yet she longed to ask her whether in real truth Mr. Slope was agreeable to her. It was by no means difficult to turn the conversation to Mr. Slope. That gentleman had become so famous at Barchester, had so much to do with all clergymen connected with the city, and was so specially concerned in the affairs of Mr. Harding, that it would have been odd if Mr. Harding's daughters had not talked about him. Mrs. Grantly was soon abusing him, which she did with her whole heart, and Mrs. Bold was nearly as eager to defend him. She positively disliked the man, would have been delighted to learn that he had taken himself off so that she should never see him again, had indeed almost a fear of him, and yet she constantly found herself taking his part. The abuse of other people, and abuse of a nature that she felt to be unjust, imposed this necessity on her, and at last made Mr. Slope's defence an habitual course of argument with her. From Mr. Slope the conversation turned to the Stanhopes and Mrs. Grantly was listening with some interest to Eleanor's account of the family, when it dropped out that Mr. Slope made one of the party. What, said the lady of the rectory, was Mr. Slope there too? Eleanor merely replied that such had been the case. Why, Eleanor, he must be very fond of you, I think. He seems to follow you everywhere. Even this did not open Eleanor's eyes. She merely laughed, and said that she imagined Mr. Slope found other attraction at Dr. Stanhope's. And so they parted. Mrs. Grantly felt quite convinced that the odious match would take place, and Mrs. Bold as convinced that that unfortunate chaplain, disagreeable as he must be allowed to be, was more sinned against than sinning. The archdeacon, of course, heard before dinner that Eleanor had remained the day before in Barchester with the view of meeting Mr. Slope, 
and that she had so met him he remembered how she had positively stated that there were to be no guests at the stanhopes and he did not hesitate to accuse her of deceit moreover the fact or rather presumed fact of her being deceitful on such a matter spoke but too plainly an evidence against her as to her imputed crime of receiving mr slope as a lover i am afraid that anything we can do will be too late said the archdeacon i own i am fairly surprised i never liked your sister's taste with regard to men but still i did not give her credit for and so soon too said mrs grantly who thought more perhaps of her sister's indecorum in having a lover before she had put off her weeds than her bad taste in having such a lover as mr slope well my dear i shall be sorry to be harsh or to do anything that can hurt your father but positively neither that man nor his wife shall come within my doors mrs grantly sighed and then attempted to console herself and her lord by remarking that after all the thing was not accomplished yet now that eleanor was at plumstead much might be done to wean her from her fatal passion poor eleanor the evening passed off without anything to make it remarkable mr arabin discussed the parish of st ewold with the archdeacon and mrs grantly and mr harding who knew the personages of the parish joined in eleanor also knew them but she said little mr arabin did not apparently take much notice of her and she was not in a humour to receive at that time with any special grace any special favourite of her brother-in-law her first idea on reaching her bedroom was that a much pleasanter family party might be met at dr stanhope's than at the rectory she began to think that she was getting tired of clergymen and their respectable humdrum wearisome mode of living and that after all people in the outer world who had lived in italy london or elsewhere need not necessarily be regarded as atrocious and abominable the stanhopes she had thought were a giddy thoughtless extravagant set of people but she had seen nothing wrong about them and had on the other hand found that they thoroughly knew how to make their house agreeable it was a thousand pities she thought that the archdeacon should not have a little of the same savoir vivre mr arabin as we have said did not apparently take much notice of her but yet he did not go to bed without feeling that he had been in company with a very pretty woman and as is the case with most bachelors and some married men regarded the prospect of his month's visit at plumstead in a pleasanter light when he learnt that a very pretty woman was to share it with him before they all retired it was settled that the whole party should drive over on the following day to inspect the parsonage at st ewold the three clergymen were to discuss dilapidations and the two ladies were to lend their assistance in suggesting such changes as might be necessary for a bachelor's abode accordingly soon after breakfast 
the carriage was at the door there was only room for four inside and the archdeacon got upon the box eleanor found herself opposite to mr arabin and was therefore in a manner forced into conversation with him they were soon on comfortable terms together and had she thought about it she would have thought that in spite of his black cloth mr arabin would not have been a bad addition to the stanhope family party now that the archdeacon was away they could all trifle mr harding began by telling them in the most innocent manner imaginable an old legend about mr arabin's new parish there was he said in days of yore an illustrious priestess of st ewold famed through the whole country for curing all manner of diseases she had a well as all priestesses have ever had which well was extant to this day and shared in the minds of many of the people the sanctity which belonged to the consecrated ground of the parish church mr arabin declared that he should look on such tenets on the part of his parishioners as anything but orthodox and mrs grantly replied that she so entirely disagreed with him as to think that no parish was in a proper state that had not its priestess as well as its priest the duties are never well done said she unless they are so divided i suppose papa said eleanor that in the olden times the priestess bore all the sway herself mr arabin perhaps thinks that such might be too much the case now if a sacred lady were admitted within the parish i think at any rate said he that it is safer to run no such risk no priestly pride has ever exceeded that of sacerdotal females a very lowly curate i might perhaps essay to rule but a curatess would be sure to get the better of me there are certainly examples of such accidents happening said mrs grantly they do say that there is a priestess at barchester who is very imperious in all things touching the altar perhaps the fear of such a fate as that is before your eyes when they were joined by the archdeacon on the gravel before the vicarage they descended again to grave dullness not that archdeacon grantly was a dull man but his frolic humours were of a cumbrous kind and his wit when he was witty did not generally extend itself to his auditors on the present occasion he was soon making speeches about wounded roofs and walls which he declared to be in want of some surgeon's art there was not a partition that he did not tap nor a block of chimneys that he did not narrowly examine all water-pipes flues cisterns and sewers underwent an investigation he even descended in the care of his friend so far as to bore sundry boards in the floors with a bradawl mr arabin accompanied him through the rooms trying to look wise in such domestic matters and the other three also followed mrs grantly showed that she had not herself been priestess of a parish twenty years for nothing and examined the bells and window-panes in a very knowing way 
you will at any rate have a beautiful prospect out of your own window if this is to be your private sanctum said eleanor she was standing at the lattice of a little room upstairs from which the view certainly was very lovely it was from the back of the vicarage and there was nothing to interrupt the eye between the house and the glorious grey pile of the cathedral the intermediate ground however was beautifully studded with timber in the immediate foreground ran the little river which afterwards skirted the city and just to the right of the cathedral the pointed gables and chimneys of hiram's hospital peeped out of the elms which encompass it yes said he joining her i shall have a beautifully complete view of my adversaries i shall sit down before the hostile town and fire away at them at a very pleasant distance i shall just be able to lodge a shot in the hospital should the enemy ever get possession of it and as for the palace i have it within full range i never saw anything like you clergymen said eleanor you are always thinking of fighting each other either that said he or else supporting each other the pity is that we cannot do the one without the other but are we not here to fight is not ours a church militant what is all our work but fighting and hard fighting if it be well done but not with each other that's as it may be the same complaint which you make of me for battling with another clergyman of our own church the mohammedan would make against me for battling with the error of a priest of rome yet surely you would not be inclined to say that i should be wrong to do battle with such as him a pagan too with his multiplicity of gods would think it equally odd that the christian and the mohammedan should disagree ah but you wage your wars about trifles so bitterly wars about trifles said he are always bitter especially among neighbours when the differences are great and the parties comparative strangers men quarrel with courtesy what combatants are ever so eager as two brothers but do not such contentions bring scandal on the church more scandal would fall on the church if there were no such contentions we have but one way to avoid them by that of acknowledging a common head of our church whose word on all points of doctrine shall be authoritative such a termination of our difficulties is alluring enough it has charms which are irresistible to many and all but irresistible i own to me you speak now of the church of rome said eleanor no said he not necessarily of the church of rome but of a church with a head had it pleased god to vouchsafe to us such a church our path would have been easy but easy paths have not been thought good for us he paused and stood silent for a while thinking of the time when he had so nearly sacrificed all he had his powers of mind his free agency the fresh running waters of his mind's fountain his very inner self for an easy path in which no fighting would be needed and then he continued what you say is partly true our contentions do bring on us some scandal 
the outer world though it constantly reviles us for our human infirmities and throws in our teeth the fact that being clergymen we are still no more than men demands of us that we should do our work with godlike perfection there is nothing godlike about us we differ from each other with the acerbity common to man we triumph over each other with human frailty we allow differences on subjects of divine origin to produce among us antipathies and enmities which are anything but divine this is all true but what would you have in place of it there is no infallible head for a church on earth this dream of believing man has been tried and we see in italy and in spain what has come of it grant that there are and have been no bickerings within the pale of the pope's church such an assumption would be utterly untrue but let us grant it and then let us say which church has incurred the heavier scandals there was a quiet earnestness about mr arabin as he half acknowledged and half defended himself from the charge brought against him which surprised eleanor she had been used all her life to listen to clerical discussion but the points at issue between the disputants had so seldom been of more than temporal significance as to have left on her mind no feeling of reverence for such subjects there had always been a hard worldly leaven of the love either of income or of power in the strains she had heard there had been no panting for the truth no aspirations after religious purity it had always been taken for granted by those around her that they were indubitably right that there was no ground for doubt that the hard uphill work of ascertaining what the duty of a clergyman should be had been already accomplished in full and that what remained for an active militant parson to do was to hold his own against all comers her father it is true was an exception to this but then he was so essentially anti-militant in all things that she classed him in her own mind apart from all others she had never argued the matter within herself or considered whether this common tone was or was not faulty but she was sick of it without knowing that she was so and now she found to her surprise and not without a certain pleasurable excitement that this newcomer among them spoke in a manner very different from that to which she was accustomed it is so easy to condemn said he continuing the thread of his thoughts i know no life that must be so delicious as that of a writer for newspapers or a leading member of the opposition to thunder forth accusations against men in power to show up the worst side of everything that is produced to pick holes in every coat to be indignant sarcastic jocose moral or supercilious to damn with faint praise or crush with open calumny what can be so easy as this when the critic has to be responsible for nothing you condemn what i do but put yourself in my position and do the reverse and then see if i cannot condemn you oh mr arabin i do not condemn you 
pardon me you do mrs bold you as one of the world you are now the opposition member you are now composing your leading article and well and bitterly you do it let dogs delight to bark and bite you fitly begin with an elegant quotation but if we are to have a church at all in heaven's name let the pastors who preside over it keep their hands from each other's throats lawyers can live without befouling each other's names doctors do not fight duels why is it that clergymen alone should indulge themselves in such unrestrained liberty of abuse against each other and so you go on reviling us for our ungodly quarrels our sectarian propensities and scandalous differences it will however give you no trouble to write another article next week in which we or some of us shall be twitted with an unseemly apathy in matters of our vacation it will not fall on you to reconcile the discrepancy your readers will never ask you how the poor parson is to be urgent in season and out of season and yet never come in contact with men who think widely differently from him you when you condemn this foreign treaty or that official arrangement will have to incur no blame for the graver faults of any different measure it is so easy to condemn and so pleasant too for eulogy charms no listeners as detraction does eleanor only half followed him in his raillery but she caught his meaning i know i ought to apologize for presuming to criticize you she said but i was thinking with sorrow of the ill-will that has lately come among us at barchester and i spoke more freely than i should have done peace on earth and good-will among men are like heaven promises for the future said he following rather his own thoughts than hers when that prophecy is accomplished there will no longer be any need for clergymen here they were interrupted by the archdeacon whose voice was heard from the cellar shouting to the vicar arabin arabin and then turning to his wife who was apparently at his elbow where has he gone to this cellar is perfectly abominable it would be murder to put a bottle of wine into it till it has been roofed walled and floored how on earth old goodenough ever got on with it i cannot guess but then goodenough never had a glass of wine that any man could drink what is it archdeacon said the vicar running downstairs and leaving eleanor above to her meditations this cellar must be roofed walled and floored repeated the archdeacon now mind what i say and don't let the architect persuade you that it will do half of these fellows know nothing about wine this place as it is now would be damp and cold in winter and hot and muggy in summer i wouldn't give a straw for the best wine that ever was vinted after it had lain here a couple of years mr arabin assented and promised that the cellar should be reconstructed according to the archdeacon's receipt and arabin look here was such an attempt at a kitchen grate ever seen 
the grate is really very bad said mrs grantly i am sure the priestess won't approve of it when she is brought home to the scene of her future duties really mr arabin no priestess accustomed to such an excellent well as that above could put up with such a grate as this if there must be a priestess at st ewold's at all mrs grantly i think we will leave her to her well and not call down her divine wrath on any of the imperfections rising from our human poverty however i own i am amenable to the attractions of a well-cooked dinner and the grate shall certainly be changed by this time the archdeacon had again ascended and was now in the dining-room arabin said he speaking in his usual loud clear voice and with that tone of dictation which was so common to him you must positively alter this dining-room that is remodel it altogether look here it is just sixteen feet by fifteen did any man ever hear of a dining-room of such proportions the archdeacon stepped the room longways and crossways with ponderous steps as though a certain amount of ecclesiastical dignity could be imparted even to such an occupation as that by the manner of doing it barely sixteen you may call it a square it would do very well for a round table suggested the ex-warden now there was something peculiarly unorthodox in the archdeacon's estimation in the idea of a round table he had always been accustomed to a goodly board of decent length comfortably elongating itself according to the number of the guests nearly black with perpetual rubbing and as bright as a mirror now round dinner-tables are generally of oak or else of such new construction as not to have acquired the peculiar hue which was so pleasing to him he connected them with what he called the nasty new-fangled method of leaving a cloth on the table as though to warn people that they were not to sit long in his eyes there was something democratic and parvenu in a round table he imagined that dissenters and calico printers chiefly used them and perhaps a few literary lions more conspicuous for their wit than their gentility he was a little flurried at the idea of such an article being introduced into the diocese by a protege of his own and at the instigation of his father-in-law a round dinner-table said he with some heat is the most abominable article of furniture that ever was invented i hope that arabin has more taste than to allow such a thing in his house poor mr harding felt himself completely snubbed and of course said nothing further but mr arabin who had yielded submissively in the small matters of the cellar and kitchen grate found himself obliged to oppose reforms which might be of a nature too expensive for his pocket but it seems to me archdeacon that i can't very well lengthen the room without pulling down the wall and if i pull down the wall i must build it up again 
then if i throw out a bow on this side i must do the same on the other and if i do it for the ground floor i must carry it up to the floor above that will be putting a new front to the house and will cost i suppose a couple of hundred pounds the ecclesiastical commissioners will hardly assist me when they hear that my grievance consists in having a dining-room only sixteen feet long the archdeacon proceeded to explain that nothing would be easier than adding six feet to the front of the dining-room without touching any other room in the house such irregularities of construction in small country houses were he said rather graceful than otherwise and he offered to pay for the whole thing out of his own pocket if it cost more than forty pounds mr arabin however was firm and although the archdeacon fussed and fumed about it would not give way forty pounds he said was a matter of serious moment to him and his friends if under such circumstances they would be good-natured enough to come to him at all must put up with the misery of a square room he was willing to compromise matters by disclaiming any intention of having a round table but said mrs grantly what if the priestess insists on having both the rooms enlarged the priestess in that case must do it for herself mrs grantly i have no doubt she will be well able to do so replied the lady to do that and many more wonderful things i am quite sure that the priestess of st ewold when she does come won't come empty-handed mr arabin however did not appear well inclined to enter into speculative expenses on such a chance as this and therefore any material alterations in the house the cost of which could not fairly be made to lie at the door either of the ecclesiastical commissioners or of the estate of the late incumbent were tabooed with this essential exception the archdeacon ordered suggested and carried all points before him in a manner very much to his own satisfaction a close observer had there been one there might have seen that his wife had been quite as useful in the matter as himself no one knew better than mrs grantly the appurtenances necessary to a comfortable house she did not however think it necessary to lay claim to any of the glory which her lord and master was so ready to appropriate as his own having gone through their work effectually and systematically the party returned to plumstead well satisfied with their expedition end of chapter twenty one recording by nick whitley purley united kingdom Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? 
At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.